descendants, mother. Am I that predictable? You have no idea. I'm calling to compliment you, Mr. Grumpy. I thought you were magnificent tonight. And so did all the network campaign experts. And that um, compassionate vigilance thing is working quite well for you. I might have to convert. I happen to believe in it. Oh, yes, of course you do. Now, Raymond? Good night, Mother. Raymond? What? No, wait, wait. Hang on a second. What? Raymond? Are you there? Yes. Sergeant Shaw. Who is this? Sergeant Raymond Shaw. Yes. Raymond Prentice Shaw. Yes. Listen. Go to the bedroom of your suite. Enter the hallway there. Go to the end and open the closet. Skinner box. The cryptocracy's search for reliable mind control methods was one of the most far-reaching secret projects ever taken. In addition to research and development in drugs and hypnosis, CIA funds 
and cryptocracy guidance gave impetus to a number of behavior modification projects carried out in federal prisons and mental institutions. Most of the projects were arranged secretly to recipients of the funds that would have no way of knowing that the CIA was backing the research. Even if they had known of the CIA's involvement, their interest in behavior modification probably would not have been dampened. Previously called conditioned reflex therapy behavior modification in the 60s and 70s was becoming the most popular tool of psychoscience since Sigmund Freud asked his first patient to lie down on a couch. Behavior modification is based on conditioning, but conditioning is a big word for a simple form of learning in which a reaction is evoked by an outside action. The reaction is called response, the outside action is called stimulus. In 1927, Pavlov won the Nobel Prize for his discovery of method of making dogs salivate at the ringing of a bell. Salivating dogs were not much good to anyone, and it was not for making dogs drool that Pavlov was honored. He was honored with the world's most prestigious award for making dogs drool on cue. He called his process conditioning. The dog's involuntary response he called a reflex. Pavlov's discoveries provided the breakthrough which behavioral science needed to begin to control the human mind. Pavlov had begun in 1906 by seeking a simple model of the activity of the brain. He decided the salivary reflex in dogs could be just such a model, so he raided the dog pound and cut holes in the animal's cheeks to implant measuring devices for the flow of saliva. By regularly ringing a bell just before feeding the dogs, he found the stimulus, the sound of the bell, intrinsically unrelated to food, began to evoke the salivation initially observed when the dogs were eating. His patient studies revealed that the quality, rate, and frequency of salivation changed depending upon the quality, rate, and frequency of the stimuli. Pavlov's experiments with dogs have been repeated numerous times by different scientists with the same results. Science now agrees that when a hungry dog is given a piece of meat immediately after a bell rings, and when this procedure is repeated a number of times, the bell alone will produce the flow of saliva almost as if the bell and not the meat were activating the glands. When the bell rings, not only will a properly conditioned dog salivate, but his ears will stand up, he'll turn towards the food source, and even make anticipatory chewing movements. Conditioned reflex in dogs, however, are a long way from making the condition of volatile, volition-thinking humans. But Pavlov established the groundwork by which anyone's emotional stability, Pavlov called it perceptual equilibrium, and sanity could be reliably balanced or unbalanced. To that end, the Soviets, and later the People's Republic of China, employed Pavlov's new science for the creation of the totalitarian state. Marshall McLuhan, writing in War and Peace in the Global Village in 1968, called our attention to an important element of Pavlov's experiment which has largely been overlooked. Quote, the work of Pavlov in revealing the fact of conditioned reflexes had a totally different meaning for the Russian and the European. Pavlov had been able to condition his dogs in his experiments 
until he had to completely condition the laboratory environments in which they lived. Until precise thermal and auditory controls were introduced into the laboratories, the conditioning did not occur. The bell did not elicit salivation. To the European, it was not conditioning of the laboratories, but the fact of automatic salivation that created excitement. Indeed, the ordinary psychological effect makes no mention of the laboratory conditioning. The Westerner lives in a man-made environment, mechanically conditioned and time-structured. McLuhan said, We end the Pavlovian laboratory of mechanical civilization and are primitive once more, living in a new electronic environment, man-made, extremely specialized and fragmented. The Westerner was obvious and oblivious of his environment as the Russian is obvious of his tribal environment, which is neither mechanical nor man-made. Western mechanism has not penetrated the Russian psyche any more than it has the Japanese psyche. Therefore, to the Russian, the exciting event in Pavlov experiments was not the conditioning of the dogs, but of the laboratories. But to the Westerner, the revelation that he was a preconditioned robot, thanks to his own ingenuity and machinists, was a most disagreeable discovery. Pavlov was the man who tipped us off that our old mechanical environment and its consequences were yielding to a totally new environment created by an antithetic in technology, McLuhan said. The Porteous discovery he made was that any controlled environment, any man-made environment, is a conditioner that creates non-perceptive somnambulists. While the general public in the West may continue to associate behavior modification with Pavlov's conditioning of dogs, the science is actually an ancient one. In its modern form, it has its roots in the works of Descartes, who in 1964, rather 1664, put forward the idea that every activity of an organism is the reaction to an external stimulus. Experimental studies to test Descartes' idea did not begin until several centuries later. Then, simultaneously, experimentation began in a number of different countries. At the same time, Pavlov was experimenting with dogs in Russia. John B. Watson was experimenting with humans in the United States. Watson was the founder of the Behaviorist School of Psychology in 1920. His most notorious accomplishment was his series of experiments on an 11-month-old infant known to the history as Little Albert. Watson showed Little Albert a white rat and the child reacted naturally and tried to pet and cuddle the animal. After Albert had established a playful rapport with the rat, Watson began to adversely condition the lad. Each time the rat would come into Albert's view, Watson would beat the floor with a steel bar and produce a deafening sound. Quite naturally, whenever Albert heard the sound, he would jump with fright. Eventually, Albert associated a loud sound with the white rat and became frightened of it. Every time the rat came into his view, he would begin to cry. Albert became so adversely conditioned to the rat that he would exhibit fear whenever any small animal came into his view. He became so conditioned that he reacted with equal fear to rabbits, dogs, and a sealskin coat, in short, to anything to do with fur. Quite proudly, Dr. Warkson exclaimed, Give me the baby and I'll make it climb and use its hands in constructing buildings of stone or wood. I'll make it a thief, a gunman, or a dope fiend. The possibilities of shaping in any direction are almost endless. Even gross differences in anatomical structure 
limits are far less than you may think. Make him a deaf mute, and I will still bid you a Helen Keller. Men are built, not born. Picking up where Watson left off, new evidence suggests that the cryptocracy began recruiting abused and abandoned children developed as programs of nebulous. Testimony from the victims of such mind control operation is included in later chapters. Watson saw things, as Pavlov did, in physical and chemical terms. He was not interested in anything beyond overt and observable behavior, and Watson was only the first in a long line of American psychoscientists who were to take the mechanistic path to control of the mind. Pavlov and Watson's classical conditioning did not, however, go far in producing a reliable science of mind control. In the late 30s, Harvard psychologist Burris Frederick Skinner discovered new principles of conditioning which allowed more complete control. Skinner came up with what is what called today operant conditioning. It was based upon the idea that reinforcement and the repetition of either a positive or negative response to an action was at the root of all learned behavior. The distinction between classical and operant conditioning was made only because different techniques were used in eliciting responses. In essence, the effects of either kind of conditioning were the same. The three most common methods of modern behavior therapy are operant conditioning, aversion therapy, and desensitization. Operant conditioning is the reinforcement of certain behavior by reward, usually food, often accompanied by simultaneous sound or light stimulation. Reinforcement is contingent upon the occurrence of the response and the reinforcing mechanisms are often built into the environment. When rats are used as subjects, the device to be operated is a bar which, when depressed, delivers the reward of food or water. In this situation, the behavior which is reinforced is the passing of the bar. It makes no difference how the bar is pressed, whether the rat presses the bar with its paw, nose, or tail. Once the bar is pressed, the operation has been performed and the animal was rewarded. The dependent variable is operant conditioning, is the response rate. The number of times the bar is pressed, response rate, or the frequency of the response is an important factor in judging the success of operant conditioning. Aversion therapy is a technique in which an indesirable response is inhibited by a painful or unpleasant reinforcement such as electric shock, noxious odors, or any other technique which produces fear and avoidance. It is an ancient form of counter-conditioning or punishment which has been widely used in the treatment of homosexuality, stuttering, and alcoholism. In desensitization, the subject is first trained to relax beyond his normal state. He is then presented with images which evoke mild anxiety. At first, the images are very mild and they are repeated until the subject shows no anxiety. Then a stronger image is introduced and the process is repeated. Finally, the subject becomes desensitized to even the strongest image. Desensitization has been used to relieve people of phobic fears and anxieties. Skinner began his experiments by building a number of boxes in which the pigeons were required to run mazes and press levers to receive the rewards of birdseed. By manipulating the way the reward was given, Skinner found he could control the rate and the style of the lever pressing. Eventually, Skinner was able to get pigeons to, to bob and weave in prescribed ways. 
He was even able to get the birds to distinguish colors by having them pick only at levers of specific colors for food. He soon learned to obtain just about any kind of behavior he desired from a number of different animals. Skinner concluded that every action is determined by that environment and that all behavior is shaped and maintained by its consequences. The behaviorist, mechanicistic view of man was summed up by Skinner when he said, If by machine you simply mean any system which behaves in an orderly way, then man and all other animals are machines. Skinner's subsequent research, however, showed that behavior which is supported by continuous rewards stops when the rewards are withheld. Further experimentation showed that by shifting from continuous to intermittent rewards, the behavior could be kept going even though rewards became less frequent. This discovery made behaviorism a practical science. For now, it could explain how behavior was maintained in the real world. With unshakable faith in his own science, Dr. Skinner built a large box with a glass window on one side. It was a soundproof cage, much like the ones he's used in experiments with pigeons and monkeys. But this box was for children, and into it Skinner put his own child. The Skinner box was about as large as a spacious crib. The temperature of the box was carefully controlled and Skinner testified proudly that crying and fussing could always be stopped by slightly lowering the temperature. With the soundproof box, Skinner was never concerned lest the doorbell, telephone, piano, or children at play would wake the baby. And, he added, soundproofing also protects the family from the baby. Apparently, Skinner's scheme to produce socialized children was not so successful. In the opinion of the kindergarten teacher of Skinner's youngest daughter, who had received the benefits of spending her early childhood in her daddy's box. She was not an obedient monoton, but rather an independent and even rebellious child. Somehow, Skinner's programming of his offspring must have failed in his own terms, for it would appear from his writings that Skinner's ideas are quite in line with the dreams of the cryptocrats who would seek to control us all. In his popular work, Beyond Freedom and Dignity, Skinner wrote, The problem is to free men, not from control, but from certain kinds of control, and it could be solved only if our analysis takes all consequences into account. How people feel about control does not lead to useful distinctions. Skinner is not only concerned with controlling individuals, he desires to build a controlled society, ruled from a crib to coffin by behavior modification. The intentional design of a culture and the control of human behavior it implies are essential if the human species is to continue to develop. In the 1970s and 80s, B.F. Skinner was the center of personality cult. He was the guru and founder of modern psychophilosophy, which holds that it is morally and ethically permissible to change the behavior of others as well as to modify others' belief. About belief, Skinner wrote, People must believe that what they are doing has some chance of obtaining what they want or avoiding something to which they are averse. But the chances are in the contingencies. The relation of beliefs to other conditions, such as wants and needs, can be easily stated. To say that desires enter in the cautionary of beliefs is simply to say that the probability of behavior with which a belief is associated depends not only upon reinforcement, but upon a state of deprivation or aversive stimulation. 
Aversion stimulation was the process upon which the Cold War faith was built. The Cold War faith, in turn, loosens the cryptocracy upon the world to murder, maim, or rape the minds of any who posed a real threat to its goals of defending the free world from communism. In the words of Louis Andrens and Marvin Carlins, the world is, in a sense, one large Skinner box. And if this is not already true, it soon may be, because there are already behaviorists at work in practically every federal and state institution, as well as in the private sector. Using federal and state institutions for testing purposes provided many benefits to the cryptocracy. They functioned as recruitment centers, where selected criminals were released to the custody of career spooks who could apply their skills in undercover work. Prisons were also valuable testing grounds. Philip Hiltz, describing the attitude prevalent in both the cryptocracy and prison bureaucracies, wrote, There are three possibilities for criminals. The first is deterrent, keep them from doing it again. Second is punishment, knock the hell out of the bastards, they deserve it. The third is treatment, they're defective, let's fix them. Behaviorists who work the prison circuit hold that the vast is the only humane way of reducing receptivism. Perhaps, but only one begins to sense in such theorizing a preview of what is to come for the whole society. These behavioral engineers are growing mightily in numbers and influence, nourished by law and order administrations that, though riddled by corruption itself, can still deliver the material goods, wrote David Rorsevich. They are not out to change the world, but to make man adjust to it. They seek results, not understanding. A thick-skinned lot they are, not loath to admit the cruelty of some of their techniques, claiming results that would take the more elegant psychotherapies and social reformers years to attain. What the world needs now is the service of curing its deviant and miserable masses, proclaim the new psychologist technologists is no more prison form, urban renewal, and nude group ropes, but a few well-placed corrective kilovolts in a collective brain. The California Medical Facility at Vacantville was the center of a number of behavioral research projects funded by various agencies, including the Veterans Administration, HEW, the Bureau of Prisons, private drug companies, and others. Many of these agencies were fronting for the CIA. In 1973, there was a flap in the press over the testing of drugs by these agencies under the guise of behavior modification. It was revealed that tranquilizers, depressants, sedatives, narcotic antagonists, and hypnotics were used, tested in the hospitals and prisons. Dr. Leo Hollister, a medical investigator for the Veterans Administration, defended the practice. The exemplary medical facility at Vacaville is one of the few places in the country where such drug studies are possible. At a time when the demands for such facilities are increasing, in response to an urgent public health problem, it would be sad to see them denied to responsible and highly reputable clinical investigators. It is debatable whether you can characterize the scientists who participated in all the project as reasonably and highly reputable. It appears from the evidence that some may rather have been, as Philip Hiltz playfully suggests, 
hunchback, wart-vested, evil scientists. Perhaps the greatest danger to freedom of thought and behavior is posed by the breed of psychoscientists who call themselves behaviorists. While most psychologists once concerned themselves with the study of human thought and the rich life of the mind, the behaviorists believe that man's problems can be best understood by studying his actions. What a man thinks, sees, feels, wants, and knows. Everything that a man is, behaviorists believe, can be most easily understood in terms of what he does. Behaviorism would appear to be a predictable expression of materialistic cultures. East and West, which value externals above all else, you will seldom hear a behaviorist speak of will or even mind. These are considered unscientific, subjective terms. Instead, the behaviorist speaks only of reflexes which are reinforced by conditioning from the environment. They look forward to the day when they conclusively prove that conditioning begins at the moment of conception and that reflexes are ultimately the very stuff of what once was called the soul. The science of behaviorism portrays the human beings as a mechanistic protoplasm. The most avant-garde behaviorists have developed an unusually unholy alliance with biochemists who together are exploring genetics, hoping to find the key for breeding selected behavioral characteristics. Certainly a person born with all his limbs will behave differently from a person who is born with genetic damage and without limbs. But beyond that, what some behaviorists are looking for is a genetic factor which controls anger, docility, and other personality tendencies. While many new scientific insights have come from behaviorism, so have many new dangers, especially to the freedom of choice. The discovery that the microtubules in DNA are binominal and programmable promised the new dawn of a day of creation in which God has turned over the job to man. James McConnell, head of the Department of Mental Health, research at the University of Michigan said, The day has come when we can combine sensory deprivation with the use of drugs, hypnosis, and the astute manipulation of reward and punishment to gain almost absolute control over individual behavior. Dr. McConnell expressed the sentiments of behavior modifiers who, like cryptocrats, believe that mankind's salvation resides in the control of individual behavior in an engineered society. But engineered by whom? We want to reshape our society drastically, McConnell said, so that all of us will be trained from birth to want to do what society wants us to do. Today's behavioral psychologists are the architects and engineers who are shaping the brave new world of tomorrow. In the most practical American way, strip for action, the psychology profession appears to be turning away from the psychotherapy and is becoming dependent upon the time and labor saving practical mechanics of behavior modification depending on principles developed largely through laboratory experimentation. Voluntary as well as involuntary actions can be conditioned. Once a reflex is trained into a subject, he becomes an automaton responding to the artificial stimulus to which he has been programmed. When light shines into the pupil of the eye, it contracts, and when the light is removed, it dilates. This pupillary reflex, involuntary, the individual has no conscious control over it, but it can be conditioned. 
C.V. Hudgens demonstrated this by conditioning the pupil to be a bell using a light as the unconditioned stimulus. He would turn on the light, which shone directly into the subject's eyes, at the same time instant he rang a bell. The light made the pupil contract every time, just as Amit made Pavlov's dog drool. Hudgens then taught his subject to use their own hands to operate the bell and light mechanisms. Then he would say, contract, and the subject would press the switch. When he said, relax, the subject would relax and turn off both bell and light. Only after a few hours training, Hudgens found that he could do away with the bell, the hand switch, and the light. He had only say the word contract, and the pupil would contract. A modern apologist of conditioning, Andrew Salter, asserts that hypnosis, in essence, is the same as conditioning. Salter said that after he had conditioned the reader of his book to contract his pupil, as Hudgens had done, he would take him to an ophthalmologist. Dr. Salter would declare, here is a splendid hypnotic subject. I control his person so thoroughly that when my command, his pupil will contract and perceptibility. Come now, the doctor would say. You know very, very well that pupillary contraction is involuntary. You need light for that. Salter would then tell his conditioned reader, contract, and the reader's pupil would obey every time, and the doctor would be perplexed. How do you like hypnotism, Salter would ask the doctor. It's amazing, he would answer. But his interest would diminish after Salter explained how, parallel Pavlov and Hudgens, the reader's pupil had become conditioned. Well, he would say, come back next time when you have real hypnotism. Our doctor is wrong, Salter said. There is the conditioned reflex. He had seen the essence of hypnosis, and parenthetically, when we see the essence of hypnotism is conditioning, or quite loosely, that the essence of the unconscious mind is conditioning, we are in a strange position to develop a sound understanding of the deepest wellspring of human behavior. The cryptocracy, having discovered the wonders of hypnosis, drugs, behavior modification, and even more revolutionary electronic and sonic manipulations of the brain, learned how to reliably control individual behavior. Whether or not the Constitution protects the individual's free thought and speech, and whether one regards mind control as bondage or a necessary tool for social engineering, one must recognize that the power to control the mind exists and is being used. Did Philip Hiltz know that he had close he'd come to when he offered this chilling description of this crypto-behavioralist? He wrote, Suppose a dozen controllers with that incurable twitch for power are meeting now in some secret mountain cabin. There, amid piles of rat behavior charts, rows of cumulative recorders, and reams of human foibles data, they're designing an environment. They're creating blueprints for a system that would produce the most terrible, violent, antisocial people possible. Thank you.